You can take a really smart software engineer and teach them security, but it's hard to take an older school security engineer who's mainly infra-focused and teach them software engineering. We have a belief in security here at Old Medical that if it can be automated, it must be automated. So part of the way that I'm scaling it is by hiring engineers who are interested in security, but are really good at automation. If a security team is not engineering automation today, they will not scale and they will not be able to play ball with the type of threats we face today. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybeat, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybeat.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Thanks for joining us again. Today we have with us Zach Powers from One Medical. Zach, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So Zach, we have a whole bunch of topics to, uh, to cover, but before we dig into that, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, just sort of the background, how you got into security, what you do these days? Yeah, absolutely. Like many people who've been in security for quite some time, that is not what my initial career was. That's, you know, I was studying like materials engineering and then I got into just different types of technology. I fell into it out of a passion for it and then more and more became the go-to guy. So ultimately, if to look back at where I really cut my teeth in security is more on a global scale with Salesforce.com, where I was the vice president of enterprise security there, managed a lot of the internal application security, the infrastructure security, but also mergers and acquisitions, a vendor security program that did you know AppSec testing on a thousand plus vendors a year. Uh, so a really big meaty program, and from there, you know, I've come to One Medical to try and take on improving security in healthcare, not just for One Medical, but across the industry and influence some of the other groups in healthcare in the United States. So it's a big mix of how I got here. You know, it's a zigzag like most security leaders. Yeah, indeed. Well, I guess the different backgrounds is actually kind of what gives you an opportunity to think about the problems in a different way, and hopefully, hopefully, do it a little bit better. Right. So, how within One Medical, what was the sort of context of the security team when you joined? Like, what was sort of rough company size, and you know, were you first security hire? Like, how was that? So, security was when I first joined was mainly looked at as um, I would say point solutions and some infrastructure security hardening. There were a couple people doing security work, some in the product engineering team, some in the IT team, but there was really no core security function, Mm -hmm. not like we have today. So when I came in, some very good things had been done, and there were still a lot of things that needed to be done. So we formed that core function and started to hire a lot of industry talent pulling from some bigger tech companies mm-hmm. that I believe have a, a much better angle or approach to security today. You know, for example, where infrastructure is code mm-hmm. rather than thinking about devices and servers that you plug in, thinking about cloud first, app first, automate everything. Those are the type of organizations we're pulling security talent from. 
Got it. So you're coming in, you're structuring this team, and just for context, because you know we've had a bunch of these conversations on the show. You know, what's the sort of the rough company size when you joined? When I joined, it was around thirteen hundred. So it's much smaller company. You know, going from global environment, sixty countries around the world, to uh, thirteen hundred staff in the United States and operating across nine cities. Cool. So you have kind of those people, and you come and you build it in. And you know, you come in. We we talked about this a little bit in the tee up, which is you know, you, you come in and and you're hiring these people that come in from infrastructure as code. And I think in general, when you when somebody sort of listens to you talking about uh, about security, you oftentimes tout indeed kind of that relationship between an understanding of the DevOps practice, if you will, to security. How do you see that? How do you see kind of the intersection or the interaction between security and those kind of uh, applications or operations teams? At many, many companies that I've had experience with or that I advise, there's an older style of security team members that really do understand infrastructure, proprietary configurations of this vendor's infrastructure, that, and point solutions. And those skills were very useful to point in time. But I find that those security engineers have a very hard time relating with and influencing software engineers. And where I see that uh, a lot more camaraderie happens and honestly a lot more collaboration and influence happens is when the security engineers themselves at one point in time were a software engineer or they have their own shops. They know how to develop. They're not just a script kitty, right? They actually have some solid coding skills. That goes much, much further. So what I... I often see at companies is kind of two camps. Does the security team have a lot of software engineering talent in and of itself? And usually there's tighter integration with the product engineering teams Mm -hmm. in those style organizations. If the security team is mainly hardware focused with like, you know, a bunch of layer three, layer four firewall stuff from the early 2000s, I don't see that tight integration whatsoever. And there's a lot of room for improvement there. When you build up your teams, do you find software engineering background to be kind of I guess uh, equally important to security experience I guess how do you how do you kind of weigh because there's only unfortunately like in today's world there's still a small group of people that have both you know in their resume both software engineering and security uh, practice I guess how do you weigh those two absolutely so I was having this conversation last night with a bunch of uh, security leaders is how do you scale this mm-hmm. And a common belief that a few of us have is you can take a really smart software engineer and teach them security, but it's hard to take an older school security engineer who's mainly infra-focused and teach them software engineering. So part of the way that I'm scaling it is by hiring engineers who are interested in security, but are really good at automation, really good at handling more of a DevOps lifestyle, more of a continuous delivery environment. Those are the type of individuals that we're scaling with and succeeding with at One Medical. It's not that we don't have the tried and true security veterans, we do. But we're scaling the team and teaching security to essentially engineers who had an interest, but they understand technology. We find that to be much more important right now. Yeah. Yeah, I fully relate to that. I think, I guess, I would even amend that with, with the fact that software engineers, as they mature and kind of gain experience, they typically even kind of build a natural better appreciation to security. Hopefully, you know, at least a subset yeah. of them, you know, appreciating kind of the role of security as a part of a quality of software. 
Well, to an extent, it depends. Of course, different people vary. But in the world of security, oftentimes, as a security person, kind of in the security career grows, they might even grow further away from the software side of things and more into like the risk aspect of the business. So I think also maybe even just that trajectory is a little bit different. Also sounds like a good, uh, not that it's easy to hire engineers, but still like with the security uh, talent shortage that we have right now, you know, the, uh, uh, an opportunity to bring somebody in from the, from the software side and train them up is a, is, is a good path, you know, uh, builds, builds uh, options. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, it really comes down to can, can someone code? You know, no matter what the position is on our security team, you've got to pass uh, an in-person coding challenge that's that's more than just a Fibonacci series. But it really comes down to critical thinking. You don't have to be in security to be able to perform an adequate threat model. You just have to like think critically, and we we do evaluate really hard on how intelligent and creative are the candidates. If they have that. They can learn security. If they don't have that, if they don't have the coding background, they're not going to be able to move at the speed of an organization like One Medical or at the speed of many of the the tech companies out there that are really have moved to or are moving to a DevOps or continuous integration, continuous delivery environment. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So I guess within that context, so that's... Um Kind of a you know an interesting and a kind of a forward-looking model. So you hire people into your security organization with some coding skills and and maybe an engineering background. What does that do? I guess how do you see the responsibility now split between that team that has some software engineering background and the software engineers themselves building the application? How do you how do you sort of divvy the responsibility or activities? Yeah, it varies a lot from company to company. But the first thing I would say is there is some degree of embeddedness that we do at One Medical. And it varies by company whether this can scale or not, where the security team members take part and sit and design review. So moving uh, security as a discussion up front, having that discussion take place with the software engineers, so not having someone in security look at the product after it's been developed, after it's been designed and find holes in it, we take part from project initiation. So the security team, not for every single feature, but for larger scale projects or sensitive uh, sections of code, the security team sits right with the engineering team responsible for that project. At initiation, you know, if you think like 20%, 80% reviews, they're all there. And that's before anybody's started writing anything. That's just at the design stage. You know, that's how we do that at One Medical and integrate that way. And it goes very well because the software engineers tend to know the security people that are embedded are software engineers in their own right. They understand everybody has a common language. And there's a mutual respect there. We expect software engineers to learn security, whether they're on the security team or not. And we expect them to provide valuable input and make decisions. So we need to be able to empower them. If they're not familiar with security, we provide custom training for them. If they want to understand threat modeling more, we go through custom training on that. It's really a mutual respect, not a big stick policy. And that works well at One Medical. At some other companies, that doesn't scale as well, to be honest. So what I see people do is develop a a questionnaire, like you can develop a real quick app that engineering teams can go through to find out should they go to a security review. Not all sections of a product or all sections of code are actually that sensitive, but they need to do that. 
that works out well for other companies. So there's some nuance there. It is what's, what's culturally appropriate for your company. But in either way, I believe security's got to start at the very forefront of that, at project initiation, when you're talking design. And it needs to be collaborative there. It can't just be a series of requirements that are tossed over the fence without any context. You'll hear me mention this a lot. Is security within the context of your product, your application, your company is very important to us. So I think you know it, it's great to embed the security team and uh, and engage. You know, I love the common language bit. You know, I feel like uh, I always enjoy kind of drawing analogies to DevOps, and oftentimes in in the world of DevOps, you know, one of the things that helps break down the walls between developer and ops is indeed some shared background, right? If you carry a, a pager, you're much more, or if you have, you know, for, for, for a day or a week, uh, you have a much higher appreciation to making sure that your system doesn't go down. Uh, and similarly, if you know how to build code, you have an appreciation that, you know, it's not that simple to make it not go down as you build the software. That said, there's still a challenge around scaling security, and you can't involve everybody inside. You know, in kind of our conversations, you were talking about how software engineers should be empowered to make security decisions. I'm going to be sort of quoting a little bit literally here. I guess, how do you draw the line? Maybe if you can give us some examples of, you know, what type of decision do you think should be made, like within software engineering? How do you how do you draw them in? Yeah, real classic example, and I'll bring this up with we integrate various tools at different stages, so like static code analysis or dependency analysis or whatnot. At many organizations, you know, having talked to thousands of software companies over the last like, 10 plus years, at many organizations, if they have a security team, the security team will scan some code after you know, the pull request way after the fact, once it's already in production. And they'll find a bunch of problems with it and they'll kick it back over the fence without any understanding of where in the product or where in the app are those vulnerabilities or logic problems, what the, the context of that situation is. So they really have no understanding or no firm understanding of the risk there. And I'm a firm believer that if you just provide information like that up front to software engineers who are responsible for that service or that section of code, they're going to understand the context and they'll realize, wait a minute, this vulnerability, maybe it's not a false positive, but it's very low risk and here's the contextual reason why. And let them make the decision around how to treat that situation versus they may see something else and say, that is far more serious than your security scanner told me. We need to actually uh, hit pause you know, have another commit, go through another round of testing. Why I say this is I think that most software engineers, especially given some training and some partnership with the security team, can begin to do a lot of this on their own, given the right tooling, give them the right data up front. There is no way that my security team or those that I'm aware of around the U.S. or in other parts of the world can review every line of code. It just won't scale, right? So then we introduce automated tools. Yeah. And then there's the classic griping that goes on that the automated tools don't understand the product. It's like, what do you remove the software engineer from the equation? Let's put the software engineer back into the equation and have them do their job, right? I think that they can absolutely make risk-based decisions. They're going to know better than a security team most times how to remediate a given vulnerability or a risk, a code quality issue. You know, caveat that with if they've had appropriate training. 
you're always going to have software engineers who mm -hmm. might not how to fix this classic bone or that. But given appropriate training, they will. And I think that their contextual knowledge and their desire to produce quality code, uh, maybe that's the optimist in me, but their desire <laughs> to produce quality code will result in a better outcome. But they do need to be empowered to make those decisions and not feel like there's this big stick policy where they spend their time and creative effort developing software and some other person that they never talk to is just going to bash holes in it and tell them it's not good enough. Yeah, I mean, That doesn't work anymore. I don't know if it ever worked. <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly doesn't work today. It's not how faster software delivery happens. Yeah. I entirely agree. And I think one of the challenges in this model, so you know, you come in and you have your engineers, you know, hopefully educated about it. There's always going to be variety, frankly, that happens within the security team as well. So you you uh, entrust them, you sort of you tell them that, hey, you know, you're you're allowed to make decisions here. Here is a set of uh, I'm kind of echoing back some of the things you said, right? Sort of here's a, a set of criteria, whether you've kind of discussed it ahead of time or it's a questionnaire or whatever, about when you should sort of seek professional help, right? Like you should sort of uh, bring in somebody from the security team to help decide with you. What do you do about incentives? So one of the challenges that oftentimes comes up is, you know, developers are not instead of the daily use, they're not incentivized. You know, they're 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 there to build new functionality. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they don't deliver a feature, you know, somebody comes knocking. But if they, you know, build a security flaw that gets discovered a few weeks later, maybe it's a security team's uh, response like that gets thrown under the bus. You know, hopefully nobody gets thrown under the bus and it's all positive. But I guess how do you incentivize or encourage, you know, uh, the the dev team to indeed kind of embrace this ownership uh, amongst all the many others they have? It's a good question. So at most companies, to be honest, there is no positive incentive <laughs> other than finger pointing, right? Yeah. At Salesforce, we definitely tried a range of positive incentives, and I've carried that on to one medical. So part of it is simply, you know, high fiving somebody for doing the right thing. Part of it might be everybody loves swag, right? So <laughs> You want an awesome hoodie, security teams know all about awesome hoodies. <laughs> We've done things like for individuals who continually do good security uh, practices, make great decisions, have them do a rotation or work on, we call this coalitions, have them work on a special project. So step out of their day-to-day -day routine. Most engineers love doing that because they don't like looking at the same section of code all day. So in a coalition, we get a cross-functional group together and say, hey, we've got a really hard problem to tackle. We want you to help us mm -hmm. tackle this problem. So giving new opportunities is a good way to do that. Uh, we've done things as silly as uh, teach um, you know, lock-picking classes, mm -hmm. things like that. So just finding something fun, memorable, to positively recognize, so in a public fashion, that this... This engineer's uh, rocking it with security, and here's why. Give examples, but then giving them something fun and meaningful in return. Yeah, you know, it does go a long way. Like the security team at One Medical will often invite software engineers to to happy hours or whatnot, where we're not just having a drink. We grab a whiteboard and we discuss things, and it when it is talked about or experienced in a more positive manner. I do believe it goes a long way. You know, people will sometimes say it's a security champions program. Some of those do work for sure, but I would say this is more just publicly and positively recognizing when people do good security behaviors 
And, you know, a little bit of swag goes a long way. Some really nice socks, you know, <laughs> a, a coffee mug, <laughs> yeah. things like that go a long way. But I don't see it happen at many companies, to be honest. Yeah. You know, if you slow your, your work down to produce better code, at many companies you're penalized for that. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely not the case. So you need some executive alignment to be this positive about it. So at, at One Medical, at companies like Salesforce, I could name a bunch of them here in the Bay Area, we have a common philosophy that, you know, it is better to produce quality code than to go back and have to fix it later on. Because it, it usually takes longer. It usually involves some angry customers. It's just, it's way more thoughtful to do it up front. Yeah. I love pretty much everything about that model. You give a whole bunch of examples, and none of them included like bonuses or sort of financial no. motivations, because I don't think that's really what sets the, you kind of have this like, you know, hoodie-driven uh, security incentives, yeah. you know, or, or swag. It, goes, it just goes way better. At other companies, we've tried this and experimented, and the cash bonuses don't really work that well. Yeah, they actually create almost a cognitive dissonance, you know, where people think that they're doing it just for the cash. Well, if you're giving them something fun, you know, clearly they're not doing it for that, but they're still enjoying it, and it still has the of the positive uh, association that comes with it's key though and change it up so you don't always give the same hoodie you don't always give the same sticker or whatnot the same t-shirt yeah change it up because if people expect that hey if i do this i'm going to get this thing it cheapens the experience so there's somewhat of an unexpected surprise they don't know when they're going to be rewarded Mm -hmm. Uh, but they realize that there's a culture of recognition when the software engineering team at one medical gets together you know, every couple of weeks, everybody gets together for an all hands. We will sit down with the security team and call out and publicly thank people for very specific actions. They're not asking us to do that, but it, it definitely goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And it, it promotes a cultural momentum that these are good things to do and that it is okay to take the time to produce better quality code. Mm-hmm. And I really do think uh, I'm an evangelist about that. I think empowering <laughs> software engineers. Uh, letting them make decisions, but also recognizing them for very good decisions or very good work produces way better security than not. Yeah, no, fully agreed. I love that. And I also feel I feel like the teams that have the best handle on this indeed do this. You know, I've had the pager duty security team come uh, come on the show and they were talking about indeed, you know, sort of awards that they have in a fourth. And they're not monetary, they're just recognition. Sometimes I forget who mentioned this, but somebody talked about uh, giving explicit security training. Elements to it, you know, send somebody like a certified hacker, uh, like a CEAJA type course, just so that they can have something to sort of add to their resume in terms of like formal, you know, hey, you've invested in it, we can develop those skills. Because at the end of the day, that helps your career as well in the long run. But, you know, fundamentally, it's all around kind of getting getting that sort of positive sentiment around it. The world of security uses the term shame a lot and uses the term pride very little. And, you know, we really, we need more of that, uh, more of that pride in it. So we talked a lot about like the software engineering background within the security team, and then you have the engineering team. You train them up, you give them these kind of positive, you know, recognition and uh, and hoodies, <laughs> you know, to sort of uh, to drive the right behavior. You tee up and you define, you know, whether it's questionnaires or practices or processes or whatever it is to sort of help them understand when do they pull in the uh, the security experts to help advise and add context, which they the application developers have. How do you, on the other side, structure? The uh, security team, like you talked about, software engineering background, but mm-hmm. maybe you can share like what's the almost like what's the org structure or the uh, 
the staffing, I guess, that you think is needed in the security side to, to help deliver on this? I think it changes a bit as you scale a security team. There's a, a phrase we'll often toss around, like the rule of threes and tens. So if you're a security team of three people, the way you do things, once you're at 10 people, it's not going to work. You need to change. And then again at 30 and whatnot. So yeah. from a broad level, the way we are structured today at One Medical is partly due to the size of the security team and the size of the company. And that'll be slightly different than, for example, how did I structure multiple teams back at Salesforce? Mm-hmm. Where we had, you know, I think the teams there are well above 500 by this point. Mm-hmm. Part of it is scale uh, of the company and the security team itself. So at One Medical today, we have a software security application security team that handles you know, all things code. Whether it's our product, whether it's internally developed applications, we have a lot of different teams internal to One Medical that develop code, not just the product team. And that whether they're doing that for data analysis on the back end, whether they're doing that for uh, enhanced productivity with this business unit or that business unit, we have an application security team who works with uh, software engineering. So finance, we have people in finance that are coding. It's really a tech company at heart. We do have a lot of doctors, but Mm -hmm. we're a tech company through and through. And as a result of that, we need a group of people to be able to partner with all these different teams. Granted, the way that we do that can vary from team to team. We're much more embedded with software engineering or product engineering, if you will, than we are with some of the other internal business units, but we provide the same services to them. Mm -hmm. The application security team really helps focus on some of the infrastructure as well because it gets a little blurry when you wholeheartedly believe in infrastructure as code and that philosophy. Drawing the line between what is your product and what is your infrastructure gets a little blurry sometimes. Yeah, So by definition almost, yeah. Right, so the, the team handles a broad set. Uh, a subset of that team also handles what I call vendor security, which is nothing but a game of risk analysis up front, followed by classic application security activities. You know, we have a gated process at One Medical, like many other really security-conscious companies, where you can't introduce software into our environments, whether you're an internal business unit or you're a software engineer. You can't bring new software into the company or integrate it with us without us going through some form of testing on it. Mm-hmm. And you need AppSec people for that. So this team handles a broad set of activities, the highest priority being partnership with product engineering. Mm-hmm. But like I said, you know, if we develop code, uh, I, I've got a finance partner who I think is totally awesome, and he develops like modules and our great guy. But we need to be able to partner with him as well. So not just product engineering. Yeah. The other real big focus in uh, the way we structure security is with SecOps. So part of that's incident response. Classic IR folks, analysts who know how to do forensics and whatnot, who have been through multiple breaches of varying scale, multiple incidents, they understand threat actors. The other part of our SecOps team really is software engineers. Uh, So there's a whole lot of guys and gals on this team that can build at scale, and they build the security engineering backend for us to consume and analyze data from a wide variety of sources and be able to automate security functions. So here's a good example, guy. I don't want to pay highly talented 
security professionals to go out and manually quarantine a machine that downloaded commodity malware. That is a complete waste of money. <laughs> uh, so we automate as much. So we have this, this as much as we can. We have a belief in security here at Wall Medical that if it can be automated, it must be automated. So whether it's uh, inbound email analysis, file analysis, whether it's configuration analysis, whether it's uh, you know detection of events, first stage triage, whatnot, all of that we're uh, have automated or aiming to automate. And the SecOps team, part of it's classic security IR professionals, but part of it is just some tried and true, very senior DevOps guys and gals who know how to build cloud, know how to build apps, know how to integrate things together. That's is security at scale today, in my opinion, a big part of it is as close to, or, you know, near time, data analysis as possible, mm-hmm. followed by automated actions and whatnot. Um, it allows you to keep your team smaller, you know, scale the technology, not the team. I don't want to throw bodies at everything. Mm-hmm. So we don't, you know, in, in that picture that I just described, there's not, for example, a security team member whose job is to manage antivirus. That doesn't exist in our team. Mm-hmm. We automate a lot of those things. Got it. Everybody on the team, except for security program managers, codes. It's just part of the job. You must know how to automate the mundane work. But that's where we're at right now. So ask me again when we're five times the size. (laughs) And I probably will need some analysts who don't code. I probably will need some DevOps or DevSecOps, however you want to refer to that, folks who focus solely on the security of the infra side mm-hmm. of the house, even though it is infra's code. But right now, we're, we're the size of a team. It's not that small, but we're the size of a team where we're primarily focused on two broader areas. Yeah. And the teams handle a lot of cross-functional or multidisciplinary work there. Well, and hopefully that automation keeps you a little bit further away from having a 500-person security team because you can sort of scale with automation, as you said, right, more efficiently than uh, than needing those. So you know, you still doesn't doesn't preclude the need to uh, to have some uh, some kind of manual assessment. You know, design reviews is a good example or whatever, but still sort of needs those. What's your uh, what's your sort of key distinctions around building in house versus using external solutions? You know, or sort of software for these things. Is there any kind of guideline for it? Not a, a super good guideline. What I would say is that if an external solution exists that does a good job. So, for example, mm-hmm. colleagues of mine in the past have written uh, their own static code analysis tools mm-hmm. that did uh, a far better job than some of those on the market. That's great. Not every company is going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So if you find a tool on the market that can do the job, by all means, use that tool. Where I see building it in-house is usually we're building something that you can't go buy off the shelf. You know, for example, there there is no security data platform or engineering back-end turnkey solution that can handle large amounts of data at scale and analyze that. You, you need to build that yourself, and you need people who are very adept you know, working in whether it's like a containerized microservices world or classic AWS or whatnot. Mm-hmm. You can't just buy that off the shelf, so you're going to have to build that yourself. But if you can buy it off the shelf, yeah, you know, there are a lot of good security tools out there. 
you know, like a web app firewall, as an example. Why build that yourself when there's a couple of really good ones on the market? I would rather use talent that's on my team to do something that's not easily solvable by someone else. Right. And I guess also like the security tooling on the market needs to uh, adapt if they haven't already to this mindset as like the more extensible that is. Because yeah. sometimes, you know, you do come across tools that are, you know, they subscribe to a certain discipline. And that discipline doesn't work, but the tool is not sufficiently flexible right. to be like a part of your automation flow. It's like my way or the highway. In which case, you know, you choose the highway, yeah. <laughs> and you go and uh, and you build your own car, and that's that's fine. Yeah, you could almost sort most security tools out there. This is where I'm not the optimist. Aren't that good? <laughs> <laughs> and the way they try to sell them to us is by scare tactics, and that doesn't work. No. Often, what we see good security tools I see today are coming out of. A lot of these, to be honest, smaller companies that are just a bunch of software engineers, they understand uh, software development today in in more nimble companies, mm-hmm. and they often have had experience on security teams that are reacting to real-world threats, not the kind of marketing threats people talk about. Yeah. So some of the products we see today, they're not traditional in that they've been around for 30 plus years mm-hmm. they are you could call them startups you could call them smaller companies or whatnot but they're people who really understand devops they really understand where the tech stack is moving in most companies mm-hmm. you know it's app first it's cloud first they understand the type of languages people use those are the products we find a lot of good in. And they're also the type of companies that collaborate with us. So they sit down with us and say, what do you need? Yeah, And we'll tell them, we'll give them a feature request. And they say, give us two months or give us six weeks or whatever. And they come back and they've done it. Yeah, they actually implemented it. <laughs> exactly. Other security vendors, if I give them a feature request, they say, give me two years, you can go pound sand. Yep. So, well, there's a whole bunch of questions I have, but I'm kind of looking at the clock and I see we've been uh, yeah. <laughs> been at it to, uh, for a while. So we might save those for some uh, future episodes. But before I let you go, I do want to sort of uh, ask you what I ask uh, most guests uh, or all guests I try <laughs> on the on the show. If you have sort of one piece of advice or sort of one pet peeve around security these days, you know that you know some some words of uh, of wisdom to tell a team, a dev team, a security team looking to level up their security. What's sort of the you know one bit of advice? Uh, uh, be for them. The best advice I could give is that if a security team is not engineering automation today, they will not scale and they will not be able to play ball with the type of threats we face today. It cannot be done manually. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some things, some types of security testing that still need to be done manually, but so much of security, especially the world of SecOps, it must be automated. So ask yourselves that. If your team is uh, capable of automation, are they prioritized? Uh, are you setting time aside for them to engineer automation? If the answer is no to that, take a step back and think about that because that is where most security teams are going today mm-hmm. at the what I would say the companies that really understand the threats and are trying to respond to those. Yeah, got it. Sort of learn to go and get automating <laughs> yep. if, you're, uh, if you're not doing that already. So Zach, if somebody wants to sort of ask you some further questions or sort of pester you on the internet, you know, how can they uh, how can they find you on sort of Twitter or others? How can they reach you? Um, easiest way to reach out to me nowadays is on 
LinkedIn. I've slowly peeled myself off of most social networking <laughs> over the years. For good reason, I get to spend more time with my daughter that way. But yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Happy to collaborate. I meet up with security leaders around the country and engineers. Happy to grab a cup of coffee. Perfect. And I guess if it's the right person, maybe apply for a job at One Binnacle. I'm sure there's some uh, some hiring jobs. Out there. We are always hiring. <laughs> Zach, this has been a pleasure and fascinating. I feel like uh, I'm probably going to need to get you back on the show to sort of talk about some more other aspects in depth. But uh, thanks a lot for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks everybody for tuning in and join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at The Secure Depth. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over 100 videos about building developer tooling companies, given by top experts in the field. 